Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. What a blessing. And uh, man, I've grown to love your pastor. And little did I know he's a jack of all trades. I mean, he pastors, he preaches, he's a husband, he's a father, and he's a choir director. So how incredible is that? You got a jack of all trades. Hey, it's great to be with you. Uh, I've been anticipating this time together and uh, just grateful for what the Lord has already done among us. And the song that we just sang is so true, is not? Is it not? He is so faithful to us. And I know he's been faithful to you in your life. And what a blessing it is to be here. I do want to take a moment uh, tonight and invite you to, uh, uh, let me make sure that's on. I'm, it's on my end. Yeah, there we go. Invite you tomorrow night. Uh, we begin our annual meeting and at the Selena Center. And uh, tomorrow night, part of our evening will be, uh, we'll have a, uh, someone share from the Word of God. And then we're going to collectively get uh, churches from all across Texas, leaders and lay leaders and pastors on our face before God and to seek that God would do something incredible among us. And so if you have tomorrow evening available and you want to make the drive to, into uh, town and the corpus there, come see us, come be a part of that. It's going to be a great night. And I want to just take a moment and thank you uh, for your partnership with the SBTC and 2,700 churches as we seek to reach Texas and impact the world together. I told the first service this morning, what I love about partnering churches partnering together through our network is that you are here this morning in Rockport, but you are also on the eastern coast of Africa, and you're in the deepest, darkest parts of Iraq and Iran. Because you partner, we're able to send 3,700 missionaries overseas to the hardest places in the world to reach people with the gospel, to take the gospel through the IMB. So you are here and everywhere around the world at the same time. In fact, you're here this morning, and you're in downtown Denver and New York and Houston and Salina, Texas, where I live, in a church plant that we're a part of. And uh, so this morning, all across North America, there are planters who got up super early, set up, they're on probably their 10th cup of coffee already and just hoping people show up. Uh, this morning as they launch out into a new gospel presence in the city, and that's only made possible because of you. And this morning, you are here in Rockport, but you are a part of training over 20,000 of the next generation of pastors and missionaries and lay leaders and and, uh, worship leaders through the seminaries that we have. In fact, I have with me John Paul. John Paul, stand up. John Paul is a student at Southwestern Seminary. Uh, He is also on staff with us. He travels with me a bit. The reason I want you to see John Paul is because John Paul is a seminary student who wants to be a pastor. And church, you are investing in his future because uh, you give to cooperative program. He is able to go to seminary at half the tuition it would cost uh, a non-Southern Baptist at one of our seminaries. And so what I want you to do is when you look at him, I want you to see the face of your cooperative program dollars at work. He is who you are supporting, who you are equipping. Thank you, John Paul. And uh, so thank you for your partnership 
uh, with the SBTC as we seek to make that impact together. It is a privilege to be with you this morning. I am not going to tell stories about Andy um, because Andy probably has stories about me as well. And so in a gentleman's agreement, we'll just leave it as it is. That was a long time ago. Uh, But anyhow, I am privileged to be here. I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 12 this morning. Acts chapter 12 and Told the first service, I had an entirely different message planned, and the Lord just stirred my heart to share a different word with you this morning, kind of at the last minute in the ninth hour. Friends, I want to tell you, it doesn't take long to look around and see in our culture and our society that we are in trouble apart from a movement of the Spirit of God among us. And it is my desire, it is my dream, it is everything that my heart beats for, that you and I as a generation would experience a move of God that is perhaps unparalleled from any other generation that's ever walked the planet Earth. And that you and I together would experience this move of God, and I believe that, that uh, there is a key element to experiencing a fresh move, a spiritual awakening from the Lord that a lot of churches have just ignored. See, Jesus never said about the church that, my house will be primarily a house of preaching. He never said my house will even primarily be a house of worship. He never said my house will be a house of mission sending or my house will be a house of discipleship. Now, let me be frank to you. All of those things are good things. But what is it that the words of Jesus himself said, that my house shall be a house of what? Prayer. And isn't it interesting, and I'm so grateful to see your church pause and get on your knees together, because isn't it interesting that we say, God, why aren't you moving among us? God, why, aren't, why is your spirit not pouring itself out on us? Why are we not uh, experiencing a spiritual awakening or a revival? But yet when you go across the landscape of churches today, you see churches that the depth of their prayer is transitional in services, meaning we start with prayer. We pray over the offering. We pray before the pastor comes up. We pray to end. And really, churches aren't setting aside time to get on your knees and cry out to God. Yet we say, God, why aren't you blessing the church today? And it's as if almost God is saying, because I said that the church is to be a house of prayer, and yet our people don't make it a house of prayer. We're kind of like my son, I, tell, I have four kids. I tell people their names are any, many, mighty, and it because there ain't going to be no mo. I promise you, okay? I've got three teenage boys in my house, friends, three teenage boys, which means their whole half of the house feels like a locker room and smells like Axe body spray. So I just stay on my side of the house. And, and uh, then we have a daughter that God allowed us to adopt from Uganda. And so our family is complete. And we were on a road trip and... Uh, my oldest son and my youngest son began fighting and arguing. Have you ever had that happen in the car? And I told the first service, I, I'm uh, 41. Uh, all that really means is when I turned 40, I could go to bed feeling like a million bucks and wake up injured. You know, I don't get it, but that's what happens. And so I've learned at 41 who my heroes are. It's not politicians. It's not sports heroes, not sports players. Uh, It's not even preachers. My heroes are those of you who raised your kids 
without a DVD system in your car. I have no idea how you did it, but you are my hero. And we were on this road trip, and my oldest son and my young son were fighting to argue. My middle son, now, he is a huge kid. He, he's in ninth grade now. He's six foot, 185 pounds. He's got fire engine red hair. He's like, we call him Opie on steroids. I mean, he's just this massive kid, off the charts intelligent. And I happened to look up in the rearview mirror and see him in the back seat with his hands folded. He was looking out the window, enjoying the scenery, being quiet. And I said, Carter. He said, yeah, Dad. I said, Dad is so proud of you. He said, why are you proud of me, Dad? He, I said, because you're being good. <laughs> he said, Dad, that's my job. I said, well, buddy, you're doing a great job at your job. Well, about 15 miles down the road, he decided to make that two-man argument, a three-man argument. The volume raised, mass chaos ensued in the back seat. I snapped and I said, Carter, in the rearview mirror. He said, yeah, Dad. I said, I thought you said your job was to be good. He said, it is, Dad, but I've decided to take the rest of the day off. <laughs> Friends, don't miss this. I wonder how much truth there is to that same principle in our life when it comes to prayer. That we know that God has called us to be people of prayer, that we know that God has, has told us if we seek him, we will find him. If we knock, the door will be open. We know that God has said that uh, you will seek and find him when you seek him with all your heart. We know that we are to get on our knees and we are to pray, but I wonder how many of us are like my son. We know what our job is. We know what we're supposed to do, but we've just decided spiritually to take the day off. I just submit to you, my friends, if we're going to see a spiritual awakening, and I believe with every fiber of my being that we must be a people of prayer. In this chapter this morning, we see a church that is faced with a situation that seems impossible, a situation that seems hopeless, a situation that seems dire. The church had but one answer to the circumstances, begin in chapter 12, verse 1. It says, And about the time that King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church, he executed James, John's brother, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the festival of unleavened bread. And after the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of soldiers each to guard him intending him to bring, to bring him out to the people after Passover. Listen to verse 5. It changes everything. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. This morning, I want us to see just three ways that this church prayed that I believe in your life, in your family, in the life of this church, in the life of churches as a whole across our state and nation, if we would take the model and the example of this church in this situation and we would apply it to our lives and our prayer lives in specific, I'm just naive enough to believe that God may just move in a way among us that we've never seen before. Here's the situation. Peter is thrown in prison they say that the greatest indicator of the future is the past. The only past he had to go off of was that Herod just arrested those who were a part of the church and he, he uh, executed James, uh, the brother of John. And so from past experience, for all that we know, this could have been Peter's last night alive. 
He's thrown in prison. He is essentially perhaps on death row, and the next day he might meet his maker. It seems hopeless because there's no attorney to go advocate on his behalf. There's no judge to stand before. All there is left to do is for the church to get on their face and beg God for the life of their friend, to beg God for a miracle in the life of the one they follow in Peter, to beg God to do the impossible. And so we find in chapter 12, Verse 5, that though the situation seems dire and impossible, verse 5 changes everything. What, again, does verse 5 say? Though he was in prison, though he was perhaps on death row, though the situation seemed hopeless, verse 5, he was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. The first thing we see in this passage about this church was that it was praying fervently, that they knew that their friend was in dire situation. They knew that there was no hope apart from God showing up and doing what only God can do. And when faced with those kind of challenges, the church gathers together in the home and they begin praying, as scripture says, fervently. Let me ask you a question this morning. How fervent or how passionate is your prayer life? Do you only pray before meals and before you go to bed? Or do you have a time that you set apart, that you go into whatever your prayer closet is, and you get on your face before God? How, how fervently and passionately do you pray? How many of you have ever been in a prayer circle, right? I, I, I love these prayer circles where you gather together, and for whatever reason, they make you hold hands. There's nothing against it. It's just a little weird. And uh, you're in this prayer circle, and inevitably the person next to you is the one that gets selected to pray first, so you're going to be last. You're like, okay, I got this, man. It's going to be a great prayer time together. And they start going around about five or six people deep in the prayer circle. Somebody prays your prayer. You ever felt that frustration? Like, man, that's what I was going to pray. Now what am I going to pray? And for the rest of the circle, you're not listening to the prayer. You're not engaged in it. You're thinking, what am I going to pray? And you come up with the second best prayer idea ever. And now it's almost you. It's only got to get past one more person. And that person right before you prays your second prayer. And now you are flustered and you don't know what to say. So you just say, God, I've got an unspoken prayer request. Amen, right? <laughs> now here's the weird thing. It's really weird, folks. If you haven't noticed this, I promise you will next time. You ever been in a prayer circle when you say amen? Do you feel people squeeze the hand? Why do we do that, people? We are weird. And I promise you next time you're going to be in a prayer circle and say amen, you're going to feel somebody squeeze your hand. I don't think this church was in a prayer circle squeezing hands. I don't think this church in this moment was saying, hey, church, let's gather together for a moment of silence. I don't think this church was reading through a prayer list and, and saying, well, well, who's this and what's this? No, let me tell you what I believe. I believe with every fiber of my being that this church knew that their friend's life depended on a move of God. And this church gathered together. I can only imagine some of them laying down and some of them kneeling. I can imagine some of them probably pacing back and forth as they prayed. And I imagine this church, as it says that they were praying fervently to God for him, I imagine that this church went before the throne room of God with passion and fervency and enthusiasm, saying something like, oh God, would you show up? God, would you rescue our friend, our leader, essentially our pastor? God, would you do the impossible? 
in Peter's life. I don't believe they were having moments of silence. I don't believe that they were, they were just quietly making their petitions known. I believe this church got serious about the business of calling on God to do what only God could do. I think it's a great model for our church today not to come ashamed or timidly before the throne of God, but to come boldly before the throne of God in prayer and asking God to glorify himself through doing something that only he can do. I've always wanted to experience a unique movement of the presence of God, and the first time that I ever had that opportunity was in the Philippines. Never forget it. It was a Monday night. It was an open-air tent. It was hot. It was humid. We sang the same three songs over again and preached a, just a simple message. And at the end, this was a pastor's and wives retreat. And at the end, these men and women, they came to the altar, and it was concrete, literal concrete. These men and women began to get on their face, and they began to cry out to God. And when I say cry out to God, I mean they were audibly weeping before the Lord that you could hear their prayers over the singing. God met us there. And they were crying out. I, I remember hearing prayers like, oh, God, give us our island. Oh, God, let no one on our island die before we can get the gospel to them. God, transform this person. Transform this family. God, would you spend, send revival to our island? And, man, they were calling out to God in, in a way I had never seen a group of people cry out to God just passionately with everything they had. They were in desperation laying it before the Lord, and, 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 and a, a, a problem arose. <laughs> you see, I'd been a Baptist pastor of two churches, and I didn't know what it felt like to get past the third verse of the first song. When we got to that place, I'm going, man, I don't know what to do. See, I tell people seminary teaches you a lot of great things about ministry, but you never spend time in a seminary class talking about what do you do when the Spirit of God shows up in a group of people. And I sat, I was kind of on the back of the stage. I didn't know what to do to be. If I can just be really honest with you, I was scared to death, man. I'd never really had people praying that passionately like that, and, and I'm going, okay, God, what do I do? Because I don't want to grieve the Spirit, but yet I also know how people watch the clock, and it's time, and it's time to end, and those kind of things. So I'm, I'm a young pastor. I don't know what to do, and the Lord just kind of impressed on me. Why don't you just move out of the way? Let me do what I'm going to do. So I walked over to the music guy, and I just whispered in his ear, we're going to sing. We're going to keep singing as long as they're praying. Friends, those people begin to beg God. Those people begin to cry out to God for their island and the families on their island and their church and revival and spiritual awakening. And it didn't go on for a song or two songs or 10 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour. It was two solid hours that they cried out to God for a movement of God. I'm just going to be honest with you. I had no idea what to do. <laughs> and I remember that night, just hearing them cry out to God on behalf of people on their islands who need the gospel. And I remember thinking, God, if this is a movement of your spirit, I want to spend the rest of my life pursuing this. See, this is what I believe this church was praying like. I believe they had gathered together. I believe that they had known about James, the brother John, being executed. They heard that Peter was now in prison. They probably got together and said, what are we going to do? We can't bust him out. He's got four, guard, four sets of four soldiers guarding him. 
What are we going to do? And I believe somebody said, hey, all we know to do is get on our face and pray and beg God. Let's get on our knees before God and let's begin praying. And I believe when they began praying, man, they got serious and did business with God. The second thing we see in this is not only the church pray fervently, I love this, but the church pray daringly. Look at verse 11. Verse 6 through 10 gives the synopsis that Peter is in prison. He's asleep. I don't know how he sleeps on the night probably of his last, of his last night alive, but he was so sound asleep that it says the angel struck him, woke him up, carried him outside of the city gates, city walls, and sat him down. And then the angel left and Peter came to. Peter had thought it was a vision or a dream. When the angel left, Peter says, oh man, this is real. This is where we pick up in verse 11. When the Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all the Jewish people expected. And as soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where they had assembled and were praying. And he knocked at the door of the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. And she recognized Peter's voice. Because of her joy, she did not even open the gate, but instead she ran in and announced that Peter was standing in the outer gate. Now, here's the incredible thing. Think about this. Peter's in prison. The church is praying. Peter's without hope. The church is desperate. Peter needs a miracle. The church is praying to God. Peter is in an impossible situation, and the church takes it to the one and only who makes impossible possible. Simultaneously, these things are happening. God hears the prayers of his people. He sends an angel to the, of the Lord to Peter. He strikes him, wakes him up, takes him outside of the city, gets him to safety, and departs. When Peter realizes that, Peter goes straight to the house where the church is. He knocks on the gate. He's so excited to be out of prison and among the church. The servant girl runs out, and as she's running out, she hears that it's Peter, and she panics. She's so excited that God had answered the prayers of the church she had just experienced praying with that she runs back in, and she says, guys, you're not going to believe this. You're not going to believe this. God has answered our prayers. Peter is out there now. What is the response to that? Listen to what they said. You're out of your mind. They told her. Listen to this. But she kept insisting that it was true, and they said, no, it's his angel. In other words, he's already dead. He's already gone. He's, there's no hope. Here, here's what I want you to understand. When we talk about they prayed fervently, so they prayed with passion, fervently, enthusiasm, I like to picture it as the lady in the war room. You ever seen the movie The War Room? Praying like that. And then God answers the prayer, and there are two people that are surprised by the answered prayer. Peter himself. He thought it was a vision. It was until the angel got him out of the city and left him. It says that he realized it was true, and he goes to the house. He goes to the house, he knocks on the door, the servant girl runs out, she runs back in and tells the church who is on their knees praying, guys, God just answered our prayers. And instead of the church going, praise God, he answered, where's our friend? Incredible movement of God. They go, no, you're out of your mind, you've gone crazy. <laughs> so not only was Peter surprised that God rescued him, but the church was surprised that God had answered their prayer. 
You're talking about a daring prayer. Praying a prayer so big that, man, you're surprised that God answered it. John Maxwell says this about leadership. He says, dream dreams so big that unless God is in it, you're doomed for failure. I would change that today to say, church, pray prayers so big that unless God is in it, it won't happen. You see, this church was praying fervently, passionately. This church was praying daringly, a prayer that only God could answer. Let me ask you this question this morning. What are you praying for that's so daring that God has to show up to answer it? Think about that. What are you praying for in your life that is so daring, so big, that God has to show up? Maybe I'll ask it this way. Who are you praying for? God's got to show up in their life to do the impossible. Let me personalize this for us today. All over this room, there are some of you who have sons and daughters who either don't know Christ or they're running from God. Dad, when's the last time that you stopped everything and you got on your knees and you passionately and fervently prayed to God that he would touch your son's heart? When was the last time, ma'am, that you begged God for your daughter? When was the last time as parents that you shed tears over their heart and their soul and their life? Some of you have grandchildren, grandson or granddaughter that's running from God. Oh, man, you've worked hard to make sure that their inheritance is lined out and what you're going to leave them. But when was the last time that you got on your face and begged God for their spiritual, eternal inheritance? Some of you might be a husband that doesn't walk with God, doesn't know Christ or doesn't walk with God, and you come here by yourself because he won't come. When's the last time, ma'am, that you just got on your face and begged God for his heart and his life? Maybe it's your wife. Maybe it's a brother or sister. Could be a parent if you're a young person. Maybe it's a neighbor or coworker. Here's what I don't know. I don't know who it is in your life. What I do know is that every person in this room under the sound of my voice has somebody in your life that doesn't know God or is running from him. When is the last time that you postured your heart like this church, begging God to do the impossible in their life, begging God to move in your son's life, your daughter's life? When's the last time that you said, God, I can't do it. I've tried. I've tried to point it, but hey, God, you're going to have to show up because, by the way, when for God to grab somebody's heart, that's a, that's a miracle because only he can do it. You see, this church prayed fervently. This church prayed daringly. I love this. It's such a large prayer. It's such an impossible situation that God had to show up. And when God showed up, it was such an incredible prayer request that when God showed up, the church was surprised. Man, what in the world? God actually answered our prayer. Well, how do we know that? Because look what it says. They tell her she's out of her mind. She keeps insisting. They said it's his angel. Verse 16, and Peter, however, kept on knocking. And when they had opened the door and saw him, listen to this, they were amazed. Man, I don't know about you, friends, but that's the kind of prayer life I want. Man, I want a prayer life that, that, that I'm praying passionately and, 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 and fervently with enthusiasm and energy. I don't want to come to the Lord to, uh, with timidity, but I want to say, oh, God, you are God, and there is nothing that can stop you. 
There is nothing that is impossible with you. So God, would you move in this situation? Would you move in this relationship? Would you move in this life? Would you move in this, this person's heart, in their mind, in their life? Would you move in this couple's marriage? Would you move in this church? Would you move in our cities, and our nation? Asking God to do the impossible. So the church prayed fervently. The church prayed daringly. And the third thing the church, and I love this, the church prayed faithfully. Now look what happens. Peter gets out of prison by the hand of God. Look what it says in verse 12. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, listen to this, where many had assembled praying. Here, Peter is out of prison. He realizes God just did the impossible, that a miracle just occurred, and he's so excited to go to where the church is to tell them that God rescued him. And what does scripture say when he gets to where the church is? What does he find the church doing? Praying. Not eating, not fellowshipping. I like both of those things. But in that moment of desperation, he finds the church praying, and here's the beauty of it. The church has no idea that God has already heard and answered their prayers, and they're still just praying. They're still asking God. And so when Peter shows up, what does it say? After they were all surprised, their surprise turns into being amazed. You see, they were faithful to pray. They didn't stop. There are some of you, if we're just honest this morning, you have a son or a daughter or a grandson or granddaughter, friend, neighbor, coworker that doesn't know Christ or is running from God, and you have been praying. If we're honest, man, God hadn't answered your prayers yet. And you're tired and you're discouraged because our timeline is not God's timeline. If you're like me, I pray, God, give me patience and give it to me now, you know? <laughs> but friends, as we pray, as we seek the face of the Lord, as we cry out to him, I'm telling you, God hears our prayers and in his timing, in his will, in his way, he will work in those prayers in a way that brings him glory and honor in his life. I don't know the timetable of God and most often I don't like the timetable of God but what I know is when I pray and when I cry out to God in desperation, I know God hears me. I know that God is working. And here this church cried out in desperation, in hopelessness, with passion and fervency. They cried out in such a way that God, if it doesn't happen, if you don't move, it doesn't happen because you're the only one that can change this circumstance. But yet through it all, they prayed faithfully. What are you praying for today passionately, daringly, faithfully? Better yet, who are you praying for today passionately, daringly, faithfully? The song we sang this morning is really one of my favorite songs. He's been faithful. I'm so glad that God is a faithful God. That song was written by Carol Cimbala of the Brooklyn Tabernacle. The Brooklyn Tabernacle is a church in downtown Brooklyn and if you've never read the book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, now it's not a Baptist book. I will just give you that disclaimer, but man, it is an incredible book. I've read it 13 times, read it every year. 
It's a story of this church that had gotten down to a dozen or so people in the midst of a, a crime-ridden, gang-infested, drug and prostitution-trafficked area of Brooklyn. Pastor Jim was a young man. He had been asked to go and try to do something with his church, and he got so exhausted, so discouraged that he got physically sick. He went down to Florida, and he got on a boat, and he just told the Lord, I can't do this anymore. God, you got to do something different with my life. I can't do this. Nothing's going to happen there. And God began to refresh his mind and his heart, and God told him, Jim, if you'll lead my people to pray, I'll take care of everything else. With that word from the Lord in his heart, he goes back. He begins to lead the Brooklyn Tabernacle to be a praying church. Today, the Brooklyn Tabernacle is known for two things, their choir and their prayer service. Back this August, I believe it was, I took a group of pastors. I, I believe Chris was with me, and we went to Brooklyn Tabernacle, and we spent a couple of days with Pastor Jim, and we were able to go to their Tuesday night prayer service, the most incredible prayer service that I've ever been in. In fact, you have to get there early because there will be a line waiting to get in. And let me ask you something, friend. How many prayer services have you been where you had to get there early? You go in, they ask you to put your cell phone away and to prepare your mind and your heart to pray. 45 minutes before they start, it's the honest truth, 45 minutes before they start, they say, if you want a leader in our church to pray over you, they have leaders, men and women, women praying for ladies and, and, and men praying for men, and they had them all across the front, and they said, if you have something you want to pray, just line up. And friends, for 45 minutes straight, there was a line that never exhausted itself. They had to shut it off in order to start the prayer service. A few years ago, by God's kindness, Pastor Jim and my Life just intersected and we became friends. In fact, I actually texted him, Pastor, this morning and said, hey, I'm at a church in, in Rockport, Texas that's singing. He's faithful. Thank you guys for your, for, your, for your faithfulness to the Lord in writing that. And Pastor Jim and I became friends and he allowed me to bring a group a few years ago up there before I did this group and we were there and he began to tell this group about a story in his life See, it's sold over 2 million, I think he told us, over 2 million copies of his book. So from a worldly perspective, that's highly successful. His wife and his uh, choir has won six Grammys for the music. From a worldly perspective, that's successful. Their prayer service every week has people from around the world coming to it. Nothing like it. And yet he tells our group in the midst of the success that we seem to be having in church, to be known as a man who led our church to be a praying church, my life underneath the surface was crumbling. He said, because our daughter ran away. And he said, we had no idea where she went. She was running from God, she took off, she left, and he said, we were scared, we were embarrassed, all of those emotions that you feel, yet we loved our daughter and we were so concerned for her, but we had no idea to know where she was or who she was with or how long she was gonna be gone, and, and, and week after week went by without hearing from their daughter, and they were praying, and their church was praying and asking God to move, and yet it seemed like God was not hearing he said, here it is, how humbling it is to be a man known for prayer. 
but to feel like my prayers were not being answered by God. His daughter had run away, I believe, if I remember the story right, she had become pregnant. It was a Wednesday night that his wife was leading the choir practice and Pastor Jim was at home and this lady walks up to his wife and hands her a little note that she says, Miss Carol, we need to stop and we need to pray for Chrissy right now. And he told this group of pastors, to be honest with you, we had been praying so much that we were exhausted. We were discouraged. And he said, but Carol just felt that we just needed to do that, that this was of the Lord. So she shut down the choir practice. And the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir got on their face before God and began to beg God for Chrissy's life to bring her home. He said, I was at home that night. He said, Carol walked in and she came up and she looked at me and she said, Jim, I don't know how to explain this, but it's done. He said, what are you talking about? She said, I don't know how to tell you, but tonight our choir got on our face and we begged God and I'm just telling you, I believe we touched heaven tonight. He said that they stopped and they prayed together and they cried and they went to bed. So the next morning they woke up and there was a knock on the door. They go to the door after, you know, they were having coffee, so they get up and they go to the door and when they open the door, as you can imagine where this story is going, there on her hands and knees was their daughter. And she was sobbing, saying, oh, mommy, oh, daddy, would you please forgive me? I have sinned against God. I have run from God. And I've sinned against you, and, and would you please forgive me? Pastor Jim said he went down and he picked his daughter up like a daddy would, and he embraced her, and he told her, oh, sweetheart, it's okay, you're home. That's all that matters is you're home now, and you're home with mom and dad. We're, we're okay. And she pushed back from him, and she said, Dad, I've got a question. He said, what is it, sweetie? And she said, who was praying for me last night? He said, what are you talking about? And she looked him in the eyes, and she said, last night, about the time the choir started praying, she said, God began to convict my heart so much that I needed to get right with him, and I needed to come home and get right with you. And she said, Daddy, last night I got on my knees and I begged for forgiveness from God and I know that God has forgiven me. And yes, I have some life challenges now, but I know that God has forgiven me and I want you and Mom to forgive me. Pastor Jim reminded us that today Chrissy is a pastor's wife in Chicago. Friends, don't tell me that prayer doesn't work. <laughs> Don't tell me that God doesn't hear your prayers, but in his timing, they had prayed and prayed and prayed, and it seemed like nothing was happening, but yet God, in his timing, convicted her heart. She dropped on her knees. She got her life right with God. Listen to, to me, friends. I don't know the timeline of God's answering your prayers, but I know that when you pray, God hears them, and God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, and that God is working all things together for his honor and his glory. And so I ask again, how many of you have a son or a daughter or a grandson or a granddaughter, friend, neighbor, coworker, brother, sister, husband, wife, parent who do not know Christ or are running from God? Are you desperately, passionately begging God for their heart and their soul? 
Maybe it's a broken relationship with one of your kids or grandkids. Are you asking God to step in when it seems like there's no way for reconciliation? Are you asking God? Because here's what I'll say to you, church. The Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we just read a story of an impossible situation. But when God heard the prayers of his people, God did the impossible for his glory and his honor. Let's pray together this morning.